0: using your gifts that way to help us worship and reflect on the glory of Christ, God in the flesh, during this Advent season. We are taking time to consider the incarnation, basically a big word that means taking on flesh, this uh, great truth in scripture that God became man, and sometimes I think we can have a... uh, a oversimplified perhaps Christianity, where we don't take time to consider this really important doctrine that, in and of itself, is worthy of worship. Certainly, it's connected to redemption uh, and forgiveness of sins, which is so important and central in Scripture. But, but the incarnation itself displays the glory of God in profound ways. So we're taking time, and today we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter two, five through eighteen. So you can be turn turning there and preparing for that. We will project it as well. Uh, before we get there, though, I, I wanted to bring up something I don't know if, if you know about, but um, that I am actually related to Tom Brady. I don't know if you guys know that. Uh, it might I, I figured maybe it was just obvious to everybody, but... Um, <laughs> Tom's paternal grandmother is a Buckley from Boston, and also originally from County Cork, Ireland. And uh, I'm a Buckley from Boston, and my family is from County Cork, Ireland, so there you go. Tom and, Tom and me are cousins, and again, I thought you might guess that anyhow. Um, kidding aside, I'm kidding, just so you know, I'm kidding. Um, I bring this up because we like to find connections with, you know, the people that we uh, value, favorite sports figures, other famous people uh, that we follow. We like to find connections, and, and so, you know, I've, I've joked about this before, that I'm related to Tom, which I'm not, maybe distantly, of course, but... Uh, But can you imagine, actually, if he had grown up in this church, that he was a friend of yours, and and, and more than just a casual friend, someone who grew up here. Uh, You know, he had started, his his family was here, he was born, and uh, just a part of the church. He went to youth group. You saw him start as a little kid, and, you know, he played sports. But there was also a lot of other things he did, and he was just a normal person, right? And you knew him, and he's your friend. Um, Can you imagine what that would be like as far as, following the Patriots. Now, I say that actually whether you're a Patriots fan or not. I think if he were someone you knew like that and had grown up and, and was, you know, just another person in the church who was normal in so many ways, um, it would affect your experience of following the Patriots, right? I mean, you'd feel differently about that. So if you're already a fan, you'd probably be even more of a fan. If you're not a fan, you'd still be interested and want to follow. And so when when he did well, it, it, you know, you'd have a special you know, joy, when he struggled, um, like they are kind of right now, um, you, would, you would struggle too. There'd be this connection uh, with him. Because you know that he's like, he's my friend, he's normal, he's just like us. You'd, you'd have that connection that would change how you relate to him. Now, I bring this up only to illustrate a really important truth from Scripture that we're going to dig into this morning. And that it's really important in our relationship with Christ To understand that he's human, just like us. And to identify with Jesus as a fellow human in a profound way is a really important thing. And to understand that actually he identifies with us in a profound way, in a more profound way, and we'll see it as we go through, a more profound way than you might find and you would actually ever find in any other fellow human being. And as we'll look at in Hebrews, this is a truth that is really important. And as a matter of fact, getting this truth might make the difference in your Christian life between struggling and, and even maybe wandering away and staying close to Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews says in, in this section and in chapter 3, verse 1. Take this seriously. You need to consider these truths about Jesus. And what is the truth that we're going to see? It's is that Jesus is human, just like us. And we need to understand that and identify with him as he identifies with us. Jesus is the hero, the human hero we need. And so we're going to dig into the passage. We're going to learn about this, how he is this human hero we need, how he relates to us, how he rescues us, how he redeems us. So let's pray, and then we'll look at God's word this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what this passage of Scripture teaches us, and Lord, it's more than an idea that's here. This is something you want to change our lives with. It's something that you want us to, to be so affected that we not only think different, but we feel different, we love differently, and we act differently. So I pray as we look at your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be changed. We would understand and apply to our lives and be transformed by you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 2 of Hebrews, I'll be reading from verse 5 through 18. Uh, It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, quote, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God's word from Hebrews chapter 2.5 five. 18. I want to look at this passage and there are really three sections in here that speak about Jesus and this role as the ultimate human hero. Uh, verses 5 through 9 teaches us that Jesus redeems us as a human. Verses 10 through 15 teach us that Jesus relates to us as a human. And verses 16 through 18 that Jesus rescues us as a human. So let's dig in and learn these things. First, as we follow it, Jesus redeems us as a human. Now, in the storyline of Hebrews, the author has been talking about this salvation that's coming, that's come and is coming. Uh, and, and in the process of talking about this salvation, he's wanting to get it clear to everybody who Jesus is. And so he's trying to help them see that Jesus is not an angel, he's superior to the angels. And, and, and as such, he's bringing in God's salvation. He's bringing in this transformation, this kingdom of God that ultimately will transform the whole world. And so he's speaking of the world to come, uh, this, this new kingdom, this new creation that he's, he's bringing. And so that's where it picks up in verse 5 for us. For it's not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So he's, he's making this transition. It's not to angels that, that uh, he subjected this world to come. It's not that angels are going to rule over this new world. It's somebody else. It's something else. And so he cites Psalm 8 here in the passage. Uh, He he quotes from Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 8 is a psalm that celebrates the truths that we were talking about last week. So if you were here last week, remember we talked about uh, being made as the image of God. And that as the image of God, we are reflect his glory, that he made creation. He created uh, earth, uh, sky, water, all creation, then filled it with beings, uh, all sorts of glorious things. And then he set mankind in place over creation to rule, to reflect him, to reflect who God is in his glory. And to bring blessing and order to creation. That's what we learned about. Well, Psalm 8 is about that. And the psalmist in Psalm 8, uh, King David, is reflecting on the wonder just as he looks at creation and sees the stars that are out there and the glory of God on display. He's just reflecting that it's amazing that you would put mankind over these things. And, and so the author of Hebrews is quoting from that, uh, that psalm. So we see it right there in verse 6, right? What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So it's a retracing of what we saw last week in Psalm 8. So Genesis 1, 26, and so forth, and Psalm 8 are right in line with each other. But it's interesting to notice how the writer of Hebrews is interpreting and applying this psalm, and he's doing so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so we know this is how God sees Psalm 8. This isn't just his idea, it's God's idea. And notice that he quotes the psalm and then says, um, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Do you see that in verse 8? Do we have it still projected? Verse 8, right? He left nothing outside his control. So he's saying, okay, so obviously the Psalm 8, Genesis 1, says that everything's to be under the control, under this reign of, of mankind, male and female, as they operate in their God-given roles. They're to reign over all this. Every, there's no exception. But then he says, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. So he's raising a question. Genesis 1, Psalm 8, it's not happening. That's what he's saying. there's There's a promise in Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. There's a reflection there. There's a promise with it. But he's saying it's not happening because not everything is in subjection. It's not under this, this benevolent brain that God intended. There's a lot of problems out there. There's a lot of things beyond our control, right? We live in a world full of natural disasters. There's disease. There's wars. There's evil out there, corruption. There's inward brokenness. Our own. We, we can't even control our own hearts. And so Psalm 8 says everything's under, and it's this beautiful picture and promise from Genesis 1, and yet it's not happening. And so with that, he's getting our curiosity going on. So what's the deal then? I mean, what's happening? And he introduces someone else. Well, really not someone else. He says in verse 9, But we don't see everything in control, but what do we see? We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you see what he's saying there? We don't see things under control, but actually we see Jesus. And what do we see about Jesus? Yes, he fulfills Psalm 8, and he fulfills Genesis 1. Because he was indeed made lower than the angels. He humbled himself. He, he lowered himself. He denied himself in what his humanity would have preferred. No human wants to suffer No human naturally um, wants to put aside their their needs. And yet Jesus did that. He lowered himself. He became a servant of others. He became a servant of his father, uh, of course, but he became a servant of fellow human beings. He became lower than the angels. He became lower than his fellow humans. God took on flesh in Jesus and then came as a servant. Philippians 2 has a wonderful explanation of this. Verses 6-11, through speaking of Jesus, it says, uh, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, and that word doesn't mean like he just resembled, he actually is a human. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's his lowering, lower than the angels and then lower than us. He humbles himself to serve us, to become human, but then to serve us to to the point of death, even death on the cross, bearing our sins on that cross, to serve us and free us from from the effects of sin. And so it says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the same sort of thing that's going on in Hebrews chapter 2 the author of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus comes as the ultimate human to fulfill what everyone else has failed to do Adam and Eve and every human after them have failed have failed to lower themselves to put God's will above our own we prefer ourselves before God and we turn away, we do not practice the self-denial that he calls us to and trusting him, we have failed. And we have failed to, to fulfill that promise that he has in Genesis 1 in Psalm 8 that, that as humanity would trust and obey and follow, they would be exalted as rulers and rule over all creation. So the only way that's fulfilled is, is someone denying themselves, saying no to sin and Satan in the world, and being a servant to serve others and to serve God. That's what Adam and Eve were supposed to have done, but they didn't. They gave in to themselves and their own preferences. But Jesus was faithful. He was the ultimate human being who did what we all ought to have done. He fulfills these things, and he thus fulfills Psalm 8, and God exalts him into the role that that he designed for humans to have, raised to, to glory and reign, to reign and rule over his creation. When Jesus was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane to forego self-denial, to find a way around his suffering, to say no to God's will and yes to himself, he refused as hard as it was as a human to face the crucifixion, to face suffering at that point, to face ultimate suffering and bearing the sins of humanity on himself having the holy justice of God poured out on him, as hard and difficult as it was for him as a human to take that on, he said, not my will, but yours be done. When Adam and Eve were tempted in a garden to forgo self-denial, they failed and they said, not your will, but mine be done. So Jesus comes as the human hero where Adam and Eve failed and we all have failed following those footsteps, Jesus succeeded. He was faithful. He denied himself as a human to honor God and serve others ultimately and going to the cross, bearing our sins. And so he comes in this role to fulfill what God wants to do. Because Psalm 8 is about this rule and this reign over all creation. That mankind is to reign in in faith and in love to God the Father. To reign and to bring his order and his goodness and bring blessing to creation. And and that's happening now through Jesus in his reign and when he returns. So when he returns, he will ultimately finish this reign and fulfill Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. And the good thing here, the really good news is he doesn't do it alone. This is the wonder of our faith. This is the wonder of the incarnation. He identifies with us. And he says, look to me, trust me in what I've done, believe in me. And when we do that, when we turn away from saying my will, not yours, God, we say, Lord, help me, forgive me, free me. We look to Jesus in that. We're included with Jesus. We're unified with Jesus. We have a union with Jesus that's so profound that he brings along us in all of, that He's earned in this reign as brothers and sisters, as, as kings and queens with Him. So our salvation is certainly centered on forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God, but that reconciliation brings so much more because now we live in Him and we experience this kingdom here and in profound ways, and then when He returns, we will reign with Him over the new, renewed creation, There's no longer sin or sickness or sorrow. And so he redeems us by becoming the human hero we all needed. And the only one that could do it was Jesus. I hope that makes sense. I hope you see it from here in Hebrews and what it's talking about. I hope it helps you understand some key truths about Jesus. That he is the ultimate human who who practiced self-denial, who obeyed his father. And as such, he is exalted. Um, I, I remember uh, in the, ni- the 1971 movie, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, I don't know if you've seen it. Um, if you're younger, maybe you've never seen it. You've seen the newer one. But in the older one, um, there's all these characters who visit the Chocolate Factory. I don't know if you remember them. They, they all failed uh, to do what they should have done to become basically heirs. It turns out, Willy Wonka is looking for an heir to take over the factory. And all these other characters, they come and they... Fail, right? You remember Augustus Gloop? He falls into the chocolate river, right? Um, I still remember that line chocolate, mama, chocolate, and he falls in. Uh, (laughs) Violet Blue, right? She chews the the chewing gum she shouldn't have, and she becomes a giant blueberry. Uh, Baruch Assault, uh, I want an Oompa Loompa and I want it now. Fame, she grabs the golden egg, she's sent to the Garden Cheap. Mike TV, gets shrunken down to TV size so they all fail but Charlie does something none of the others do when tempted to take that everlasting gobstopper and give it to Slugworth for lots of money he chooses to deny himself and give it back to Willy Wonka all the others would have taken it and stolen it and given it to Slugworth but he chooses to give it back to Willy Wonka And that makes all the difference in the storyline, right? Because now Willy Wonka realizes this is the sort of person I want to take over the chocolate factory. It's a picture of Jesus. Sad to say, guys, uh, Augustus Gloop and all of them are a picture of us, uh, myself included. I don't know which character fits. I'm not saying anything specific here. But we're the ones who have failed and fallen short. And we're unable. We're, we're, We're lost left to ourselves, and yet God in his great mercy and Jesus in his great love for us identifies with us. He's the one who is faithful. He earns the right to own and run the factory in a new creation, and, and, and he doesn't leave us kind of walking out the door like that crew in the story. He actually says, you know what? I want you to come with me. So come and look to me and follow me. I want you with me. That's the wonderful good news of Christ at Christmas in his incarnation. So application in light of this, guys, let's let's just simply look to Jesus. Let's put our hope in him. Let us make him our hero who we depend on in all things because he's with us, he's for us, he's our redeemer. Next, following the section here, we learn that Jesus relates to us as human in verse 10. It continues. And it says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's an amazing verse. Amazing in many ways. There's a lot of things we could probe. First, that God himself, uh, God the Father, this God is three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit eternally existed, ever glorious. So speaking of God, by whom all things exist, for whom and by whom all things exist, so the center and source of all things he is a gracious, loving God who desires to bring many sons to glory. And by the way, understand in Scripture when it uses sons, and in most of these cases, it's just the plural meaning sons and daughters. Uh, English is just probably one of the few languages where We don't use the plural that way, but in other languages, when you say sons, it means sons and daughters. So bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that this great God wants to bring us to glory. He wants to bring us into this place of reconciliation and forgiveness and freedom from sin and, and in a reign over the new creation. So it's about going to heaven to be with him, but ultimately, as Christ returns, we come back to a renewed earth where heaven and earth are joined together, and we experience glory forever. So he desires this, and in order to get there, it's fitting for him to do something. He has to make the founder, that's Jesus, of their salvation perfect through suffering. What does that mean? Because if we understand it right, Jesus is God in the flesh. He's human in every way, yet he never sinned. He has no imperfections. So why does it say he has to be made perfect through suffering? What does that mean? Is there some imperfection? Well, the word for perfect in Scripture has a slightly different meaning than often we understand it in English. It it means complete, mature, full. And so there's something about Jesus. It's not his moral imperfection. He's not lacking perfection in who he is morally. But he has to complete something. He has to fulfill something. He has to go through what it is to be human in the fullest way. And that includes suffering. He has to suffer in order to fulfill his call to be fully human and to bring us, to rescue us from darkness and bring us into light. And so he has to suffer as a human. He has to go through what we go through. He has to face what we face, and he has to face it ultimately for us to the point of bearing our sins on the cross. That's what it means here. God could not save us as just being God. He had to become man to enter into our humanity. And he had to go through what he did. He had to live a life just like you and I have lived, a normal life, but also an extraordinary life because he suffered and he lowered himself and he served. He did what we all ought to do. He loved perfectly. He loved those around him. He loved his father perfectly. And he suffered and he bore our needs to the point of death, even death on the cross. He had to do that in order to save us. And that's what this is saying. So his humanity is essential. And his humanity as something that he suffers with us and identifies with us. It goes on to say, verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin, that means we're made of the same stuff. The one who sanctifies, the one who rescues us from our sin and makes us like him and brings us into glory. And those who are the, the, the subjects of that, the objects of that as well, are, are of the same source. We're made of the same stuff. We're human. And it says he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And then the author goes on to quote from uh, a psalm by David and a quotation from Isaiah, two quotations near each other. Both these have something in common. It's where David and Isaiah acknowledge suffering and at the same time identify with their brothers and sisters. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what you see in that psalm and in Isaiah. He's the ultimate one who amidst his sufferings chooses to identify with his brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. It's amazing to think he identifies with us at that profound level. He chooses to do that. He's not ashamed. Now, he has lots of reasons to be ashamed, at least of me. I can speak of myself. And by identifying with me and taking on himself my sin and the things that I've done and the failures that I continue to do, The awful things that have gone on in my mind and in my life, and and I don't need to make this about me, but but I know there's plenty in me to be ashamed of. And yet in His amazing mercy and love and His glory, He identifies with us at this level. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have a union with Jesus. You are connected to Him as a human and as God in a more profound way than you are connected to any other human being. That's what the union of Christ is about. He identifies with us at this incredible level. And he takes on himself. He becomes sin for us. We don't understand how that works because he never sinned. He never was a party to our sin. And yet he identifies with us at such a profound level that, that in 2 Corinthians it says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. So he identifies with you at that level. He identifies with you in his humanity and all the ways that he lived as a normal human being but in suffering and going through the worst suffering anyone could ever have. He understands your suffering. He knows your sin because he took it on himself to bear it for you. And the wonderful thing here we see, of course, right, that that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is about rescue. We're going to talk about that momentarily. But he relates to us in this profound way that is just mind-blowing. This is Jesus. And this is what His humanity means. And this is why this is so important to understand. And this is why in chapter 3, verse 1, the author says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And you need to consider Jesus and His humanity and what He's done and this level of identification He has with us. There's no one closer to us than Jesus. If we have looked to him, nowadays there's a, I think it's a good trend. There are support groups that are out there, right? And people are participating in these support groups when they're going through hardships in life. And we do that because the people in that group, uh, usually, right, have gone through the same sorts of things that we have. And it can be hard in life when you go through difficulties. You can feel alone, right? And you can feel like like nobody has gone through this thing. They don't, they don't get the challenges. But, but then in my support group, they know. And so whatever the, the struggle might be, we, we form support groups. There's all sorts of ones out there, right? There's groups for addiction and, and, uh, and uh, anxiety disorders. There's a long list. I have a long list of all the different things. Um, whatever the, the struggle might be, there's a group out there that gets together to support. And that's a good thing. Because we can identify with a group, the group identifies with us, and we can feel alone otherwise can feel embarrassed. And the reality is that, that even if you're in a group, you have other things that are different from the people in that group that, that they don't identify with. And if we start to think about it, 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 we can realize that, you know what, nobody actually knows the things that I think. Nobody's had this particular experience of, of challenge and, and suffering that I've had or you've had. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. So no matter what group we're in, nobody in that group's going to know the trouble you've seen, but nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows but Jesus. That's right. That's who he is. He relates to us that profoundly. He knows us that well. He's that close to us. If you are a believer in Jesus, there's a union. He knows your trouble. He knows what you face. He knows how it feels. And he's come to identify with us and relate to us. So let me ask you in light of that, are you going to him with your trouble? Or are you just toughing it out? You know, I just want to let you know it doesn't work. Because you're not meant to tough it out. You're not designed that way. God didn't build you to be independent. He built you to be in a vital, close relationship with him that Jesus has brought to you. And if you try to tough it out, you're just going to end up with bitterness or anger or depression or even physical maladies. Not all, but, but they're Many times, physical maladies come out of emotional struggles and spiritual struggles. So bring your trouble to Jesus. He knows. He's there to intercede for you. He relates to us. Finally, Jesus rescues us as a human. All this relating in what Jesus does is not simply to relate to us, as helpful as that is, but it's to rescue us. It's to be a true advocate for us. By identifying with us at that level, he, it empowers him, allows him to be a savior for us, to be our advocate. Uh, uh, some years ago, I was attending a hearing for a restraining order for uh, a friend was seeking because uh, she felt endangered and harassed by someone, um, and uh, and I was just there as a pastor, uh, and just was there in the hearing. And uh, my friend didn't have a lawyer. And we heard that the court actually would provide an advocate. And I was like, great. That's great to have an advocate. And so my assumption was that that advocate would argue her case before the judge, because the person, the other person had a lawyer. I expected that they would argue the case. But to my surprise, this court advocate never said a word during the hearing, just stood by my friend and gave her kind of side hugs and stuff. And, and I thought, That's not an advocate. I mean, there's nothing wrong with side hugs. But an advocate does more than do side hugs. An advocate's supposed to do something for you, not only to relate to you and care for you, but to help you and to intercede and and to advocate, to speak on your behalf. Jesus is such an advocate. He not only relates to us and knows our trouble, but he comes to rescue us to take care of our problems to take care of all of our problems and our biggest problem by the way is our guilt bef- before a holy and good God God is good God is not malicious or angry in some sort of general way he's just simply good and glorious and the reality is if we look at our own hearts honestly and our lives honestly we can't stand before this holy God because he's good we've fallen short and our biggest problem is, isn't these other things, as important as they might be. I don't mean to diminish other forms of problem and trouble and suffering, but our biggest problem is we are made by a holy and good God, and we have failed Him, we have rebelled against Him, and He and His justice must address that. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. That's God's just penalty for our rebellion against Him, is death, spiritual death, and, and eternal spiritual death should we choose to live our lives apart from Him. And Jesus comes as our true advocate. It says in verse 17, in all this identifying with us, he comes as a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. A priest represents the people to God. So he comes as this priest as a human to represent us to God. It says to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is the advocacy we need. Propitiation is a very technical word. It's an important word, and it means to put away wrath. Now, with God, his wrath is not capricious, mean-spirited. It's just goodness. It's the same thing we feel when we watch something happen, when we watch something, someone do something evil to an innocent party. That's the same reaction that God has when he watches us sin and rebel against him and, and harm others. He is justly angry he demands a punishment, a proper response. And so Jesus comes to give that proper response, to die in our place, to propitiate, to put away this just wrath for us. And this is the Father's will, by the way. The Father wants to welcome us in, but He can't just sweep things under the rug. He must deal with it. And so Christ Himself identifies with us and then goes to the cross to make propitiation for our sins and pay the price fully, finally, for all those who trust in Him. He takes the blame in our place and His great love for us as a human and as God in the flesh. There's no one like Jesus. It's amazing to think that he takes the blame for us. I, I don't know if you've ever had an experience in life where someone's taken the blame for you. Um, I was remembering as a kid it happened many times, but usually not because the other person wanted to, uh, because I blamed them and they got in trouble instead of me. Um, and sad to say that's usually what happened. I can only think of one instance where I ever took the blame for someone else. Um, And that was just who I was. I don't know how it is for you in taking the blame. If you you blamed others and they got in trouble, that's what I did. But Jesus is a brother, a true brother, who takes the blame for you willingly. Willingly takes the blame for you. Takes the punishment and offers you free forgiveness if you simply would turn away from all the alternatives and trust him. And in him find forgiveness and life. And this new life in him under his reign, learning to live in the kingdom that will never end. He is this ultimate brother who comes and identifies with us at this incredible level and rescues us. I hope hope this is all clear. And I hope you understand, we all understand, what it means. I hope we understand better who Jesus is. He is this human hero that we all need and more. And I hope that in this you find strength and hope that is powerful enough for life's sorrows. Not only powerful enough for you in life's sorrows and challenges and temptations, because he knows our temptations, he's there for us don't be alone in your temptations cry out to jesus i hope that you understand that we have power and hope in these things not just for our sake but that we might love others who so desperately need to know this jesus if the band could come up as we prepare a transition let's look to him in prayer Jesus, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you that you've made yourself known to us. We thank you, Lord, for who you are as a human, the ultimate hero we need. You save to the uttermost, and you are everything we need. And I pray for us, Lord, would you strengthen us in the understanding of these things, and in faith, and in the, the, the hope and the joy and the love that that comes with it, and that we might overflow to others who so need the same hope. Be glorified, Jesus. There's no one like you. We love you and pray these things in Christ's name.